when you're arguing with someone, it's more about them than it is about you. And so what you need to take into account is when you're arguing with someone trying to change their mind, you're, the best you can probably do is plant a nugget for them to think about later. Mm-hmm. And even better is try to steer them in a place where they don't wind up in a little fight or flight episode. Because once you get someone on a little adren- adrenaline rush, they're not going to learn a damn thing. <laughs> and so if you're even able to do those things while arguing with someone, you also have to realize that you're not just trying to plant a nugget. You're asking them to most likely reprioritize the way that they think. And that mm. is huge. That is exhausting. And no matter what you do too, you need to realize that when you're asking someone to change their mind, it's not up to you and you can't, you shouldn't even take credit for it because it's really up to them at the end of the day. They've changed their own mind. Hello everyone and welcome back or welcome to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience and we challenge ourselves and others to think question and synthesize wherever their curiosity take us and by human experience we mean making sense of the events in our life and how we can take those experiences to live the most fulfilling life that we can and it's my hope that through these conversations you can take away blueprints to learn and lead a more fulfilling life for yourself and with that everyone please enjoy today's episode my guest today on the podcast is nick bugle Nick is one of my closest friends, and in this conversation, we really try to impact how Nick has adjusted during this pandemic. Like many of you, this has been a time of extreme change, and change that many of us don't either want to happen or just have to accept that's happening. All of our routines have changed and shifted and adjusted, and in many ways, we have to just learn to lean into that change and accept her for what it is. For me personally, I'd thought of this as a way to, even though there's certain things of this that I don't enjoy, like I can't go out and travel like I had planned to do, given that I'm finally out of school. But now I thought, what can I do to learn so that by the time this all goes away or dissipates somehow, I'll come out better for it. And Nick, I think, is a true example of how to make the most out of the situation, making lemonade out of lemons. (laughs) And the other part of this too, is we get into some ideas around social media and the polarization within the internet sphere. This podcast was recorded in early September before the debates and before all of this political stuff had really ramped up to the degree that it is now. But I still think it's pertinent to what has been going on because of everything that we've seen. So I find this conversation to be very enlightening. And we, I think we get to a lot of points that I think other people will find useful for themselves in thinking about not only their own beliefs and ideas, but how to help handle the ideas of other people they might not agree with. As with that, everyone, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Nick Bugle. And boom. Nick Bugle, back on the podcast. Probably long overdue. You haven't been on in a year at this point, man. Maybe not. 
I think I was on with like Jordan. Yeah, you've been on with them with the work-life balance one or something like that. Now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, but solo for sure. Yeah, this is the first time I think in at least two years. So yeah, glad to be back. Yeah, (laughs) I really appreciate it. And given the circumstances, I wish this could have been done in person considering when it's people who, when it's people who I know and who live nearby, I'd prefer it. But such is the way of the world right now. And so I think... Sorry. Yeah, exactly. I think the best place to start with us here is just really how have you been adapting to this new normal over the last six months? What was work like, life like, and all of that stuff? Because it's a huge change and everyone reacts differently. Yeah. So I think a good place to start in me explaining that is the difference in my approach to all this and something that I certainly wouldn't expect or offer as an umbrella to other people. Something I talked about in the last podcast is my recurring codependent behavior and really forging a lifestyle around external gratification. And so for a while, like three years in the making, I was just constantly thinking, what would it be like if I just went and moved to a log cabin in the woods? What would that do to my mental health? Would the lifestyle that I live right now, would I be able to actually adapt? Would I still function? Would I go crazy out in the woods? Could I just do me alone without constantly being surrounded by people and experiencing new novel things? COVID, as dark as it is, has offered me the opportunity to, in some sense, live out that log cabin year. And so um, really, in the beginning, I was like, concerned as to how I might handle quarantine. And it turns out that, I don't know, I wasn't as bad as I thought. I survived <laughs> and I'm still surviving and I've grown significantly more introverted uh, than I ever really anticipated I could be. And it was interesting though, too, because in the beginning of quarantine, I was working for about two weeks and then I faced a three or four month furlough. And so losing my job Actually, I don't know, it made it different. I was really concerned in the beginning about where my purpose was going to go. Purpose is a really big thing. Of all the things you want to cling to while your entire life shifts around you, it might be nice to maintain some sense of purpose. Yes. And so that was all of a sudden gone. And I noticed myself becoming a control freak about other stuff. Mm. Especially like with quarantine going on, I was like really essentially neurotic about it. And I think in retrospect, it was like, okay, I don't have control over my job. I don't have control over the people around me. I don't have control of a lot of stuff right now. Everything's up in the air. So what can I control? And I noticed the second I got my job back, I became laxed about so many other things. And it was like, wow. Now that one thing is set back in motion, it's okay. I realized that I was attempting to probably compensate for so much other stuff. That's an Um, incredible sense of awareness to have, even in the few short months that has all occurred. Because I think it's it's normal for people to to want to cling to something. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's even like yeah, holding absolutely. on to a relationship, right? Like people will mm-hmm. try to make something work well past its usefulness sometimes, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, we all have our crutches, man. And I don't know, but it was really interesting because I was like a little concerned about just what I was going to do. Like finding out on a Friday that I was that basically – the way I saw it was that Saturday and Sunday didn't mean anything anymore. Like the idea of a weekend was not every single thing was about to become a weekend day. And so especially coming from the external gratification lifestyle, albeit I'm someone who doesn't make plans, but you've been on the other end of this quite a few times where I'm someone who would wake up every Saturday morning and be like, okay, 
who do I text to go get breakfast with? And then who do I hang out with after breakfast? And then what am I going to do in the middle? And then where am I going to go for a nature reserve? And then what party am I going to go to first? And then how am I going to finish off the night? And so I would construct that pretty much every Saturday morning on occasionally having plans. And then Sunday, same thing. And then the week would roll around and there was a little bit less stress because I had that eight hour chunk of this is what you're going to be doing. And not only did I no longer have access to external gratification in that the world was shut down and in quarantine, I no longer had that portion of my life that was like, all right, this is the eight hours of what you're going to be doing or 40 hours, I should say, of the week of what you're going to be doing. And so uh, I was, I don't know, it, it was like really stressful at first. The delivery of the news wasn't as stressful because like I just saw it coming, but it was, I don't know, it, it wasn't all that bad. I wound up like the, what we had just been talking about before we started this podcast is my idea of living somewhere for at least a month versus just taking a week long trip comes out of the appreciation of the things you can only experience while you're there for a longer amount of time. Right. Yep. Like I could have driven through Deerfield, Illinois at any point in my life and been like, Oh, nice town. But having worked there with my headquarters being in that town, I got to drive through there in the summer and see cool sunsets. I got to drive through there in the winter and see how beautiful it is when a fresh snow coats all the trees and stuff. And like yeah. just those little novelties kind of everywhere and without having been furloughed, I don't know that I would have experienced nearly as much about the Palatine, Barrington, Kildeer, all that kind of stuff. And there's just so much like really cool little novel stuff that I never noticed and got to because of my three months of removal from normal everyday practice. And in that also, as someone who like pretty much never, ever read ever, <laughs> um, <laughs> It might not sound like a lot of books to the normal avid reader, but I read 10 books this year in a three-month span or four-month span, and it was just really nice, and I didn't think I was even capable of that attention span, let alone, let alone retaining stuff and kind of like drawing parallel connections between these things and mm -hmm. really adapting this knowledge for my self-betterment and all that, but I don't know. It, it, as much as it's been a pivot away from socializing and it's robbed me of that, it's also presented a really interesting opportunity for me to totally shift into a lifestyle, I have kind of veer. It feels the light across the river in Gatsby or whatever. You know? Oh, yeah. And all the, of a sudden, the, I green, went to the, party the green light on the park. Something like that. Yeah. Maybe that's a terrible metaphor. I don't know how this ties into Gatsby, but, but no, I just like something in the distance. And now I always looked up to it and now I'm doing it. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. And it turns out I can, I'm a more fluid person than I anticipated. That's so. really cool. So the first question I have there is what was the books? Uh, do you remember any of the books that really made an impact that you've read over this quarantine period? Um, yeah, like all of them. <laughs> I know I made a list for them. I, that's actually how I found out I read 10. I was about to, I was starting to read my 10th book and I was like, I think this is number six for the year. And then all of a sudden I like started making a list for myself and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> but the, the one that you had gotten me actually, I think like probably a month or two before everything went to hell. The Blueprint by Nicholas Christakis, that one took me forever to read because every paragraph was just this meaty, dense brick of like beautiful information. And so I would take, I would basically reread every paragraph five times and then sit with it. And I was lucky if two paragraphs were interlinked enough for me to only have to read like a couple times over, but trying to like retain all the knowledge from that book and really attach it to my memory I, it took me forever to get through it, but it was one of the most rewarding things I've read. And, um, the one that my actually book number 10, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Oh yeah. You brought that up. About, 
Yeah. So about four of the other books I read, or maybe three of the other books I read, are like in that mode of like perspective shifting. One being a book on Buddhism, one being that awareness book that, thank you again, you got all of us for Christmas. Wonderful present. And then there was a couple more sprinkled in there. But so between all those, it seemed as though the subtle art of not giving a fuck, like actually just offered a wrap up in all four other books that I had read and the subjects and brought them all together. And so like the book on Buddhism covered Buddhism, the book on awareness covered more objective, like stark contrast from subjectivity and the couple other books all tickled other stuff. And so this book, this last one, the subtle art, um, just wrapped all of them up. And I was like, wow, how convenient that I just happened to read this one last. And they all kind of like <laughs> put all these together and pulled ideas from every single book. And I was like, and I even remember too, uh, the Buddhist book that I was reading was actually the one that I mentioned on the last podcast that I did solo with you two years ago. And I, I'd only really gotten about a chapter and a half in to that. I didn't oh, go very wow. far. And then I shut it down and walked away. And with the people I've been able to meditate with and the groups I've been able to meet with and all the like little novel things I've experienced and read up on in between, now picking up that book again, it seemed much less like gibberish and all just made perfect sense. And I was like, yep, yep, no, all of it makes sense. Like, I have no questions. This book makes sense. I'm just going to listen to this guy narrate what I already know and participate in confirmation bias. But it was really cool. Yeah, that's really neat. I. To me, it sounds like what this has done for you is give you a reason to attempt a lifestyle that you thought would be foreign to your personality type. Like you outlined the, the typical weekend day for you with going to breakfast, doing something after breakfast, then maybe chilling for a bit, then going to a party and then wrapping up your day. You try to do fill in blocks of time as much as you possibly can. And I think what a lot of people wind up doing is instead of looking at this and saying, oh crap, I have to figure out my new way of doing this. I have to figure out, they say, oh, look at what has been taken away from me. And I haven't heard you say anything like that in this conversation so far, which I I find really fascinating. Is, is there a I guess the word would be acceptance of the situation and not saying, not clinging to one, what once was. So I've actually been not so much personally doing the whole clinging dancing thing, but I have been, what is it? I think it's Plato's or somebody that says the true mark of a genius is entertaining an idea without accepting it. Mm -hmm. I'm not there yet, but (laughs) not so much that, like I can certainly keep my distance. And I think that actually is a skill that I've been able to derive. I once had a conversation with a friend about, speaking with people about speaking with people that have like very different views and whether or not you should really hold that conversation in a valid sense or hold that, hold that person in a valid regard while they speak to you. Mm. And so for me, and this isn't the Dodgers are better than the Sox or some shit. This is basically the devaluation of human life in some ways is, is talking to someone about those things and listening to someone while they speak on those subjects worth hearing. And so for me, despite the fact that I might disagree with every single thing that person says, I think there is some merit in learning how someone holds, who holds those views thinks Mm -hmm. and learning a little bit more about how someone could possibly even think like that. And even 
if it only translates into when you meet someone else who's a little more moderate down the way, you can play with the Socratic method in the future and approaching it from how they might think. Yep. And maybe they have some synonymous thoughts with the other person, but so that I'm, I'm not terrible at this, but when it comes to reading certain things, one of the other books I had read was another wonderful gift from yourself, the man's search for meaning from Victor Frankl. And so he talks about, not only that's actually an important book that kind of put a lot in perspective of quarantine. It was like, <laughs> these people survived the Holocaust. And basically, I don't know, like, is, is life worth living if it's not enriched? Is a really big question for me. And I think the answer should always be yes. I think the ancestors that allowed for us to even exist here today, we have to at some point have all had one ancestor who lived a far from enriched life, who probably lived a hell of a life that was not nearly as rewarding as it was taxing, but they went on, <laughs> they procreated, and now we're here today. And yet I think there's a lot of people, and I think quarantine has revealed this, is that there are people out there in great numbers who think a life that is not enriched is not one worth living. Mm -hmm. And therefore I would rather forfeit my health than live a life that is not full of constant external gratification. And so reading Victor Frankl's stuff, just like hearing stories of how people kept in the good spirits in any way they possibly could in the face of such a horrific time in history, especially to read this book, it's so novel to have something written that is so psychologically challenging written by a psychologist or a psychotherapist, right? Yeah. Not only one that lived through the Holocaust too, like all of his work yeah. was burned, his manuscript yeah. and everything he what everything he once was, regardless of that, he was a successful professor was removed. His mm -hmm. mark on the world was snuffed out, even though he was still alive. And they did yeah. that for compliance sake. And yet yeah. that put that put him on the journey to create that book, to be honest. Yeah. You know? Right. No, exactly. Man. That's as much as I guess so again, right? Even there we can take we can at least see that something beautiful came out of something horrible. At least looking on the bright side. In no way does that book does the cost of that book outweigh its its value. But at least we can say that something good came of it and that's what victor frankl says is be mm -hmm. worth your suffering oh and so basically right is like the things that challenge you in life are they going to break you or are you going to be someone that made something better of yourself as you overcame the atrocities that you might have experienced yeah and it's and then what is it that the subtle art book talks a lot about responsibility versus um blame mm -hmm. and victor frankl at no point in time is he at all to blame for the holocaust but he is responsible for how he reacts to it. We're responsible. All of us are responsible at all times for how we react to everything that happens to us in life. And so back to, back to circling way back to your original question about <laughs> um, whether or not I feel robbed or whether or not I feel as though I should be focused on the path, I think, on the past. You have an acceptance of your circumstances. You're just you're right. present in the moment rather than looking back and saying, wow, look at all of the, I like going to live music. I can't have that anymore. Or right. these things like I could, the could have beens that yeah. we like to, to focus on. Even if this wasn't going on, we do this regularly. No. Yeah. So yeah, like circling back to that question, I think all of that kind of adds value to my answer here. Yes. I hope so. Absolutely. Um, all the previous comments, but 
pulling that all into it, basically between the Viktor Frankl book about, so Viktor Frankl talks about how in the Holocaust, one of the things that kept him going was writing the book that we're now talking about, right? He's, I need to focus on the future and I also need to look to the past and value the things that I was really happy about too. So there's nostalgia and future thinking that play into his survival. And he doesn't necessarily talk much about being present outside of, he's obviously present in it. He's not totally detached. He hasn't come become completely apathetic. He offers the fact that those who become, became apathetic uh, were often, sadly, the first to die. And he does talk about that, whereas instead, this, the, the Buddhist books I was reading say, immerse yourself in being fully present. Don't think about the past. Don't think about the future. Every single moment is always dying. You are who you are right now. And there is actually no you in any way, shape, or form. Whereas, again, I think I've talked with you and Joe about this. I think I could be entirely wrong. I'm no psychotherapist in any way, shape, or form, but something I have noticed in my life, it seems as though people who have experienced atrocities cling to their egos in a healthier sense, whereas those who have not have an unhealthy attachment to their ego. And so for me, someone who has been rather egotistical throughout my own history as a human, I and experienced very little adversity. I personally feel as though I have to start detaching myself from my ego and that participation in it, which is why I started resonating so much more with Buddhism. And it wasn't that I, I had already read halfway through Viktor Frankl's book and then I picked it back up and restarted in quarantine here. And so in the beginning I felt detached, but now participating in quarantine, something at least a little bit taxing or demanding in a way, I felt a little bit more resonation with it being robbed of freedom in some small sense, mm-hmm. but not necessarily. It's, it's just that ask of pivot. And so back to that whole to, to read something and not fully entertain the idea. I was torn between this Buddhist thought of be fully <laughs> present and also that nostalgia and future thinking. And I was like, it's always possible that everything is conditional, but just like capitalism is. They can both be I, true. One doesn't, yeah, exactly. one doesn't make the other invalid either way. And, and I think to your point with the idea that you because you feel that you hadn't been challenged as growing up as much as maybe other, some other people were, it's this lessening of the ego or this, to put it bluntly, is saying you don't matter, right? Learn, like come, facing your own mortality and that at the end of the day, each one of us can die and it doesn't, like it, the impact that would have on the universe or whatever you want to call it, it, it doesn't matter. And it's really east west, east meets west right. thinking about the world with Western philosophy and psychology being very much individualized, whereas Eastern is always about groups and how the parts make the whole. But I think there's parts of it that we can combine and meld together and that apply to each other to make a more cohesive picture for how does a part become part of the whole? Right. Or how does the, a single individual make a difference in the larger scope of society? So I find it fascinating that you, you're able to see these parallels in different ways and at the very least recognizing that they may not be antithetical, hopefully. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. And so I think it's just just like something that I've said before, look, one person about the color and the other person's talking about how comfortable they are. While they're both talking about shoes, it's kind of two totally different conversations. And so I don't know if you can hear that plane, but um, so with that, in terms of adding your conversation about becoming part of the whole, I think the way I looked at these egotistical attachments and stuff is 
the idea that instead of trying to be awesome, partake and or do awesome things, right? And so it, it, your actions are a bigger dictator of your level of awesomeness and your proximity <laughs> to awesomeness than, so if I think I'm the shit, but I go out and I do really horrible things, I'm mm -hmm. not cool. That's not cool. If my actions, even if I think I'm an awful person and you do really effective stuff for the whole, I think that dictates so much more about your level of awesome than just what's in your head or what you try to, especially what you try to convince people around you to believe about you. Mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of people like get really caught up is trying to forge this opinion about them or trying to like create this version of themselves and basically control their reputation. And I don't know. So beyond that, I'm trying to pull a few things back together in my head here. Basically back to the whole thinking about things and entertaining them uh, fully. I was a little bit torn in terms of nostalgia and all that kind of stuff. And really considering all the different ideas that these books bring up. And so you, another thing on top of nostalgia and nostalgic thinking coming from Frankel as a very important factor in this, in that subtle art book, the, the author talks about how for instance, economically, to think about the fact that you need more money is not a positive thought. It's actually the negative thought of saying, I don't have enough money. And the idea of being nostalgic or thinking about the future, oh man, I can't wait to go travel when you know this whole pandemic clears up. And I can't wait to go back and try this. And I can't wait to do that. It seems like focusing on what you don't have and focusing on you know, like being less present in a sense. And so I think this whole time I've been trying to find that balance of being present in the moment and also... Just, again, I don't know, just finding that balance of thinking about the travel I will do, but not the fact that it will define me and not the fact that I'm missing out without it, but realizing I am just someone who likes to travel and I currently can't. Mm -hmm. And so, but like, my, my confusion in explaining this still aligns with my confusion and where to, what path to take and my seeing them, even seeing them as two different paths, right? That they don't necessarily coexist in that. Yeah. But in terms of being present, I, I will say that this has offered a really cool opportunity to be present. And it wasn't until before basically I was starting to read last year and what I would do is I would bribe myself into reading because I can't just sit at home with a book I, I don't know what it is but I can't do that there's too many local distractions and so I, I often even now I still have to go somewhere even if it's like the front stoop and I sit outside to read uh over quarantine I was regularly going to this one spot that had like a gazebo where no one was ever at and I would like read in the gazebo and so I would bribe myself into reading in the beginning by taking myself out to dinner at a restaurant that was most likely not going to be packed, crowded, and loud, and I would just sit down with my food and I would read. And however many pages I read between the food arriving and whenever I was full, it was what it was, and I was like lucky if I got 30 or 40 pages. And there was one time I was at this like nice little diner, and this guy next to me, I don't know, I had no idea who he was, but he sits down, and I was, I sat at the bar deliberately to not be bothered. And so this guy sits down next to me and all of a sudden every single staff member of the restaurant keeps coming up to him and keeps talking to him. And these aren't like quick little, Hey, how you doing, hon? Okay, cool. Got to get back to work. These were like 10 minute vivid conversations that also peaked in volume and lowered in volume. And were like, had all the levels of distraction that they could. And I'm sitting there trying to read this book and I got like really annoyed. And I was like, dude, I just want to focus on these pages. I feel like I made the right moves for me by sitting at this bar and trying to avoid people yet. I cannot escape like some type of external distraction. And so instead of continuing to get annoyed and try to read my book, I was like, wait a minute, let me think about this. This guy seems a little bit important. 
he seems like there might be a reason why everybody is touching base with him. Mm-hmm. And so I just shut my book and I looked over and I was like, Hey, just out of curiosity, are you, I was, I don't know. I, I can't remember how I said it, but I was like, what's your deal? <laughs> <And I was laughs> like, basically like, why is everybody talking to you? And he like chuckled a little bit and he was like, Oh, I'm just a guy that comes here all the time. I'm a pretty big local. And I also cater for lunch a lot at my company. And I was like, Oh, I was like, Oh, so you said your company is like, yeah. Yeah. My dad handed me off something. And it turns out he was one of the largest goods distributioners in this side of the Midwest. And he was a pretty high up guy in a very large operation. Well, high up, he's the owner. Mm-hmm. And so he also glanced over and he was like, I see that you're reading a sociology book. And I was like, yeah. And all of a sudden we have this really interesting conversation about like corporate sociology and corporate um, psychology. And I was like, wow. And so it, it wound up that being present in that regard, instead of staring at my book and trying to sit there and be like, no, I came here to do this. I went with the distraction that was offered to me and it wound up being really rewarding. And just even hearing some of the things he had to say about how he works as a leader, how he motivates his team and all this kind of stuff. I was like, wow, I'm not going to lie. This might've been more valuable than the pages I was about to read. And even if not, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to learn these things if I hadn't been, you know, able to distract, been able to pursue that distraction. And so even now with like strictly going to nature preserves and pretty much trying to stay away from the human race back in (laughs) nature preserves all the time, there was so much stuff that I never noticed. And now just like going to preserves and like being present in the moment, realizing way more about like creaky trees and like all these different plants and like the bugs everywhere, all the bugs everywhere. (laughs) But, Oh no, not the bugs. Yeah. Just being like a lot more of a witness to life, but not being so up in my own stuff and just noticing all the things going on around me and Mm -hmm. how, how much more of a participant I am and how much better it is to almost act as a participant instead of, pretending like the world is about me because that takes so much more energy and it's so much less rewarding. (laughs) And so it's just, it's, what's the word I'm looking for? Not gratifying, rejuvenating Mm. in a sense, just to kind of go out and instead of shaping all these social interactions, which I'll reinvigorate. Yeah. I guess reinvigorate me in a sense. Every time I had a social interaction, it was this positive feedback loop of, Oh, that was fun. Let's go do another one. But mm-hmm. I think the exhaustion of social became constantly shaping them. That's where that external gratification exhaustion comes from where it's, I don't control people and I am lucky that they're willing to partake in moments with me, but they're not in no way, shape or form at my disposal. So if I'm constantly pursuing external gratification, I am at the mercy of those around me. And that becomes mm. unhealthy relatively quickly because if your happiness shaped around something external that you have no control over, that might not go so well for so long. And if you're someone like me that likes to be happy, you should probably learn how to be in control of your own mode. And being present and this whole COVID thing has helped me shape those things. And again, trying to find that balance of nostalgia and thinking to the future and being present. I think it's been a really cool exercise in finding the balance in all mm-hmm. those. And I think that's where they coexist. It's not so much that they work together, but just finding a balance for yourself. And again, seeing the merit that is brought up in that subtle art book where not focusing on the fact that I can't travel because that just focuses on the fact that I don't like where I'm at right now, but more so focusing and realizing I'm someone that likes to, I can look forward to it, but I don't have to hate where I'm at. And if, in fact, if I hate where I'm at or I, in fact, when I follow the distraction that I'm participating in, it is often rewarding. So mm-hmm. I don't know if any of that makes sense. but No, it does. <laughs> For me, one of the things I think that kind of comes through, if I were to sum it up in a word or two, would be the, the sense of gratitude or finding something to be grateful for in whatever it is that you're doing, right? Like you could have complained 
maybe being stir crazy and say, well, there's nothing to do around here and not do anything. But instead, you've decided to go find parks, get outdoors at the very least, and, and do things. What was the driving factor to, to just say, well, I'm just going to try and do this because at least I can go do that? That wasn't really a decision at all. It was just like, I know I'm going to do it. As for going <laughs> to nature preserves, nature preserves is something I had like always done. Like mm-hmm. for, I think I can speak back to that decision, which is in the same vein as what I'm talking about right now. Like that log cabin social removal in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, back in, I want to say 2013, I had started at this place in Itasca called Gift of Hope. And I think one of the friends I had at the time had already kind of been like, oh, let's go to Bussy Woods. And I don't know what it was, but one day after work, I, at the time I was working two jobs and I was going to two schools. And so I spent a lot of time on the road. And I think I just noticed how many things I was passing that were very naturey. And one day I was like, maybe I want to check that out. And in this thinking about the whole, what am I like without constant social interactions, I I would go on these four-hour walks through all these preserves that were in the Itasca-Addison area. And so I'd been doing that for years. When I went to ISU, I found all the nature spots I could too. And so for me, when COVID hit, it wasn't even like a decision for me to be like, oh, maybe I'll go do this. It was just, I already know what I'm going to do. So I'm just going to do it. Now I have the free time. And it was already, you know, there were a few places that I already, already wanted to check out. And so it just freed me up to do. But the only thing I, I just knew was that I wasn't going to like do nothing. Like that just wasn't an opportunity. Whether it was like, I'm going to meditate more, whether it was figured out what it was. And what I also realized too, is that while I do have a larger bandwidth for intaking information than I thought I did, is that I'm not so good at pivoting on that. So like as much time as there is in a day, I can't watch 15 different documentaries about 15 different topics because mm. it just doesn't work like that. And I don't think I'd be digesting yeah. it the way I would need to or want to. And so like for me, one documentary takes up four hours of time. If it's an hour and a half documentary. So like whether between me pausing and rewinding and going back and relearning something, pausing to digest something and then whatever, and then taking like an hour afterwards, to just really understand and like rework my thoughts on it but so I was getting on myself and I was like dude you still have 24 hours every single day and you just got 40 hours of your time back let's call it even more for the lack of commute and the lack of decompression you no longer have a social life and I still realized I didn't feel as though I was deriving as much out of my days as I could and I was like wait give yourself some credit the things that you're ingesting are a little bit heavier this isn't like you're binge watching a show that you can just go through this is just important stuff that you want to retain and i realized too i was like it sucks if i read this book and i forget some stuff maybe i'll have to read it a second time and i don't want to read every book i own twice and i was like wait why are you reading this book if you're reading these books to learn these things if learning them is the thing that supersedes all of it then reading them twice is the least of your worries right the cost of time is nothing compared to the knowledge that you will gain from these things. So screw it. Read it four times. Who cares? If if your end goal is to retain this information, do what you can. And so giving myself that credit to take time on stuff and not beating myself up for watching documentaries and reading books and taking longer than I thought I would Mm -hmm. was really helpful and just like a thing that I think took a lot off my my plate. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's I don't know. I I like to think of this kind of stuff, at least like choosing what you consume, at least from a mental standpoint. It also is in other ways too. diet, like it's a diet for food is one thing, but I think we can apply a diet of what you consume as an information in just the same way. That's why I think using social media is one of these horrible things because 
social media can be something that's analogous to fast, a fast food diet because it'll poison mm-hmm. your brain and, and it'll give you very low quality information. And then it eats up so much of your bandwidth to be able to actually input and retain more robust information. And I think your take on this is really important because it, sh- it goes to show that maybe even if you're like reading books like the ones you've been talking about through this entire conversation, you might not understand them right away. And it's not a fault mm-hmm. of the person saying, oh, I'm just not smart enough to read this or, or whatever self-talk that may get in the way. I think that's not the point. The point is that you're attempting to do it anyways. And it's a better use of your time than doing something else that you then going on Twitter and reading 10, 15 tweets or going on Instagram and mindlessly scrolling for 10 minutes or going on Facebook and finding a useless argument that's not going to change anybody's mind because I think that's half of the battle for a lot of these things. Just understanding where you should be placing your attention for the best impact that it makes on your life. Because I think that's really the detriment of a lot of what's going on right now is that our lives are so interwoven by uh, social media that we have to use the internet to stay in touch with the people that are our friends or family. Now, I'm sure sure you have more to unpack on that. Given all the turmoil that that we're going on, what would you um, say has helped you either like limit social media or helped you put it in its proper perspective or place so that you're not dragged down by it? I don't know. I don't want to say I don't participate in social media. I certainly do. I think the biggest form of social media I do is just Snapchat, really anything. Mm. And, and if I'm being honest, not to be a jerk to anybody, but I, I mo- what I mostly do is take pictures of things I do throughout the day that I enjoy mm-hmm. so that right before I go to bed, I can be like, what did I do today? Oh yeah, look at that. That was awesome. And anything from like an accordion player on the side of the road while I was walking by, to a really cool lake I visited. And some of those things I like save to like my official like little backlog and like kind of revisit sometimes and be like, oh, that was a good time. But for the most part, it's just really a recap for the end of my day. Not necessarily for any type of interesting anyone. I just don't mind sharing that kind of stuff. It works as like a little mm-hmm. temporary diary. But uh, in terms of Facebook, I don't know. I think that's the only form of social media I've really ever had. And I don't know. It just kind of, I think it just offers like these interesting chambers that would push you to take a what they call, there's a lot of calls to action. It just doesn't seem, I think the issue there becomes what I see on social media seems as though it condenses extremely complex issues into simplified things and then turns them into these incredibly polarizing, like the, the, the end goal is these polarizing things. It's like basically X happened and we need to know how you feel about it. Are you a yes or are you a no? And so much stuff is like incredibly more complex than anything you're ever going to see. And it's just, I don't know, it's exhausting. And you see these echo chambers rise up and loop people in. And there's this gratification that comes with the in-group thinking that says, yeah, you joined us. Yeah, you're part of our manifesto now. And what is it? There's a combination of things that I've like even read that have helped me reshape my understanding, whether or not it's just the savoring of moments 
and stuff like that and savoring moments personally, not, oh, this will be good for social media and I can't wait to post this. Especially if your entire life is about just constructing something for online to make your life look entertaining or better than it really is. I I think another thing that I really love that I read is the fact that life is uh, 90%, what's the word, monotonous. It's mundane. It's boring. And on social media, you don't really see that. No one posts. Some people do. Some people are like, oh, tried the new Coke. Was good. Okay, thanks, dude. But for the most part, social media is this uh, condensed version of the exciting parts of life. And a good photographer can also make something seem even better than it really is. And on top of that, Instagram made everybody into a good photographer. So life is a whole lot more exciting than it really is, apparently, on social (laughs) media. But what... What also happens there is, I don't know, this removal of the consequence of like understanding the downside of stuff. I think I said this last time on the last podcast I did with you two years ago. If you, when you say you want someone's life, well, you're demeaning the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. When you're like, oh, this person lives such a cool life, you don't know what the hell goes else. You don't know what the hell goes on outside of what they share with you. Yep. And so, just live your own, <laughs> do your own thing, <laughs> experience the world. Yeah. Um, and have your own views, but don't, you know, let those, I don't know. I have no idea. The one thing I've learned over the past couple of years is that I have no clue about anything and that I am incredibly dumb and that <laughs> it's a beautiful thing to be aware of while you navigate the world. And what's more is that you can be more forgiving of yourself and you can be more forgiving of other people because everybody is incredibly dumb. And I mean that in a very sincere way, because if you think about how many di- different levels of expertise there are throughout the world. Let's say there's, I don't know how many topics, but for, let's just give a little ratio here for every one expert on a field, like a true expert, Mm -hmm. there is at least a million people who are not an expert in that field. Right? So for every one piece of intellect, there is a million pieces of lack of intellect. And so in that same regard, ignorance is inherently more abundant than genius or knowledge, I should say. Yes. There is so much knowledge out there. Um, there is so much knowledge out there that it's it's literally impossible for all of us to know it. And when you realize that about, once you realize that, I think that's another one of those things that circles back to ego is because I think people feel as though their stances and their beliefs are part of them. And that's just mm-hmm. not the case. Like, if you wanna, if you wanna pretend like there is a you and that you're not exchanged energy that the universe let flow through you and the combination of molecules that make up your body right now that will be recycled into something else in another millennia, sure, let's go with that. There is a you. But beyond that, you want to entertain that there is a you and you're not a subjective form of the universe witnessing itself to some degree. You're not your political view. You're not these little beliefs that you hold, you are so much more complex than that. And to limit yourself to these thoughts and to limit your experience, this brief experience to that is to me insane. It feels just, it, I'll say childish. It, it mm-hmm. just feels under underdeveloped or undereducated to feel so completely immersed and committed to a point of view that you would rather let it cost you a vibrant lifestyle and you would rather let everything upset you when it challenges your version of you that you see as beliefs. Like, I don't, it just, it's so dumb. And so that's, I don't know, feeding all of this leading back into social media. I think it just, it adds to that staunchness. It, yeah. It's just, and it feels dumb, <laughs> but I don't know. And so, and, but at the same time though, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with, being dumb in that we all are on some level. And yeah. I think another 
thing to take into account is that when it comes to intellect, I think a really big issue is prioritization. And that's something I've learned this year, especially having to come in close contact with people who have very different priorities than me. Mm-hmm. If, if I want to consider someone, if I value nuclear chemistry or nuclear physics, then a lot of other people on the planet are going to be dumb. Yeah. But if I know nothing about social navigation or conversation or reading people or anything like that, and everyone else has a relatively good hold on that, then I'm dumb. And there's so many different ways that you can be dumb or you can be ignorant on a topic. And it's just like a really big thing about priorities. So if you look at someone, I think one good way to look at someone, like especially on social media and be like, this person said this about that, they're dumb. That's just not the case. It's that your priorities and their priorities are very different. Mm -hmm. So it's possible... I've seen it that a lot of people, if you if we want to talk even politically and be divisive in that sense, maybe conservatives have less concern over social issues as they do over issues of order, issues of government power, and issues of economics. Mm-hmm. And so it's not so much that conservatives might not think that the social issues existing are actually issues. It's that the conservatives might have prioritized those issues far lower down the list than the other things that they value high. So it's not a level of brilliance, it's a level of priority. And that priority might be shaped by proximity to the issue or an ability to dodge said issues. It's, I think a really thing, a big thing to take into account is when, from a marketing point of view, if someone has offered you their time, they do not owe you their time at all. When you're arguing with someone, it's more about them than it is about you. And so what you need to take into account is when you're arguing with someone trying to change their mind, the best you can probably do is plant a nugget for them to think about later. Mm -hmm. And even better is try to steer them in a place where they don't wind up in a little fight or flight episode, because once you get someone on a little adrenaline rush, they're not going to learn a damn thing. (laughs) And so if you're even able to do those things while arguing with someone, you also have to realize that you're not just trying to plant a nugget. You're asking them to most likely reprioritize the way that they think. And that Mm. is huge. That is exhausting. And no matter what you do too, you need to realize that when you're asking someone to change their mind, it's not up to you and you can't, you shouldn't even take credit for it because it's really up to them at the end of the day. They've changed their own mind. You might've offered them the ability to, or the path to take, but it's up to them to change their own mind. And at no point do I think you should ever try to take credit for that. I don't know. There's lots of things to think about. (laughs) I think social media is an interesting social experiment and playing ground, but yeah, I think it, I don't know. It's interesting to see. I guess if we want to consider a playing ground, I think in the same regard, you can see that we're all kind of big kids with the immaturity that comes from a lot of the arguments and things we see online. So, yeah, um, I think social media is this. It's such a new thing to have so many people on it that might may or may not have thought about what it is they're actually going to say. Because unlike this is unlike any time in history where majority of the population can create a platform or a following or have unprecedented reach around the globe by a tweet they send or a photo they put up or a video they share or whatever it may be. No matter, you don't have to be someone who's earned credibility or has a some sort of approval system to get a message out there they can just do it and there's nothing as long as they're not being overtly harmful or those typical community guidelines or whatever that 
they try to control, but we all know that doesn't work 100% of the time. We, we can now have multiplicative reach on anything we do that I, it's like these, it's like a, a new cultural thing that I don't even think we've really even begin to understand the terms of the rules of engagement. If we are going to use a military term, like we don't have that playbook yet. And the, all groups or all people on every side haven't really figured out what is the best terms of use and the rules of the playground, mm-hmm. so to speak. So right now, I think especially because yeah. Yeah. these platforms are being used as our surrogates for the barroom talks, the going out with the boys on a Saturday or Sunday to watch sports or whatever you call it, right? Like we need these pressure relief valves in our society for us to get frustration out, talk about the shitty things that happen at work or just bullshit with friends about being annoyed or, or, or talking about like sports and like messing with each other and being like, oh, what about this guy? And your one friend is always a big LeBron fan, aka Jordan. I gotta throw Jordan out there. Stuff like that. Like, yeah. like, like a lot of those little things that make little things that have big impacts on the quality of your life that allow you to pressure relief in different ways have been removed for us. And I think we're, those pressure relief valves are now turning into different things because in the realm of like politics yeah. or anything where you feel like you can make an impact now seem like, Oh wait, when everything else is taken away from me, I can still do this and have a meaningful life to circle back onto this purpose element that you've started with. And I think a lot of people are searching for a sense of purpose in a, in an area where everything Mm -hmm. is so uncertain that they want to find whatever it is they can, you know? No. Yeah. I think you're right, man. And, I think too. So I want to circle back to this one thought. So yeah, if you, please do. you could remember iPod in twenties, we'll circle back to the iPod in the twenties. Okay, cool. But so pretty much everything I've said so far is answers that I've already thought about. Now I'm just kind of like spitballing from here. Maybe even too the fact that social media has grown into something where Trevor, whoever says drinking the new Coke was okay, feels like something he should have said and that people might care about. We've now introduced social media has gotten to a point where it feels as though all of our thoughts have merit. And to some degree they do, but it's the same thing with everybody is amazing, but everybody is amazing. That doesn't mean just you is amazing. That doesn't mean you stand out of the crowd. That doesn't mean we all have merit. It doesn't mean that you're better than anyone. In that same regard, if all these thoughts have merit, but you think yours is better than everybody's, that's pretty arrogant and pretty lame. Another thing to think about is uh, a, a novel perspective on arrogance that I read about from that subtle art book is not just thinking that you're better than everybody, but the thought that your issues are more important than everyone else's. That's a really big thing. If you don't often associate the person who is like, woe is me, life is terrible as arrogant, but it is to think, if you think about it, if, if someone thinks that their issues take more precedent or gravity over everybody else's issues on the planet, and they're the only one that's ever experienced a hardship, that's self-absorbed. And so obviously there's different issues and different things to take into account. And I think I'm talking more about day-to-day mundane problems. Oh, the laundromat was closed and I really wanted to go. Why is life against me? But I think another thing too, in this spitball thought of mind on what you were saying previously, maybe in that same regard, this thinking every thought has merits before we might've had a little more etiquette. And now every thought has merit is just revealing a lot more about how everyone thinks. This comfortability about the thoughts that they might have reserved before coming out to the forefront. And also those thoughts are 
being negated by some, but they're also being celebrated by others. And we'll we'll go back to that social media high of in-group, out-group. And so there's that really quick high that comes from taking a side with a group. And so I would imagine that brief high outweighs the the lack of gratification and or the rejection from people whose opinions do do not align with yours. So when you speak these supposedly novel thoughts and you get a little high out of them, you're going to keep doing it more and more until we really get down to how you really think the stuff that you might not say, the stuff that you would never say in an interview, I guess is the way I'll put it. And um, so the iPod of the 20s or iPod in the 20s, I should say, design has to graduate with its audience to be functionally effective or to be celebrated by the audience that it's looking to serve. I I can't remember where I read this, not interested in plagiarizing it though. This is not my own thought, but a thing to take into account is that if while the iPod was selling like hotcakes in 2001 or whenever it came out, if you would introduce the iPod in the 1920s, no one in their right mind would have bought that thing because it was way too simple for the time. There was a designer that came out with a product and I cannot remember what it is for the life of me, but he comes out with a product in the, I think, 1960s, and it's way ahead of its time in terms of design and function. And it's it flops. No one buys it. No one cares. And that speaks to this whole thing where, like, the audience hadn't adapted to the simplicity that we see today yet. And with the growth of technology that we see, maybe we can draw a parallel in the fact that, like, our lives have changed so much in the last couple of decades because of the growth of technology even this year alone, the growth of e-commerce, I think, has shot up. While e-commerce has been steadily growing by 10%, e-commerce has now shot up by 60% this year, I think. It's crazy. So, like, just, we're seeing growth everywhere in technology. And maybe that's just technology is growing faster than we can learn how to use it. And so mm-hmm. maybe technology has become the iPod and we are people from the 20s. And it's not so much that we're going to reject it. Like we have to use technology because it's so embedded in our lives, but maybe instead of rejecting it, we're just really terribly misusing it. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, that's the side effect. I don't yeah. know. Like, I, I think it's everyone's favorite quote as much as we all make fun of it, but also do it. Why would I use this device that could connect me to almost all the information in the world when I could go right. argue with someone on social media, but <laughs> there's gifts and curse of anything you do. Even working out has gifts and curses or eating mm-hmm. healthy. Has, there's negatives and there's positives to anything you do. To me, what the where I push back on technology, and I feel somewhat responsible as an engineer to be able to communicate some of the effects of technology it has on people. And really what that means is how, like basically since we turned on the lights, there has, seems to, like society was changed forever. Ever since we had the electric light bulb and we started powering cities, it changed humanity forever because it disconnected us from the natural circadian rhythm of mm-hmm. of normal organic life on this planet because we weren't beholden to the sun or the moon anymore yeah. or candlelight for that matter. And that in turn then leads us down into 2020 and 2021. Now where we're at are going to be with computers and the rest of it that has been generated because of the electrification of the world. And... I will say this forever, but that it's we need to re reevaluate our technology mm-hmm. and ask ourselves, does this work for me or does this or is this technology using me? And and I think that's a big question that's starting to make people think because 
At first, having platforms like Google and stuff made the internet convenient, made it usable, made it what it is. But then there's a point where these things turn into a system that instead of the users being the point of being there, the users become the product. And it's Mm -hmm. how much the users interacting with the content that then turn into a way to sell things to those users, which I think is really disingenuous because rampant consumerism and instant gratification, it's not fair to some people because you're going to put it in front of someone's eyeballs who doesn't need that thing, who doesn't have the wherewithal or they're just tired. I guarantee you we've all been there. 2 Mm a.m., you drank a little too much beer or had too many, one too many glasses of wine, whatever it might be, or you're just tired. That one ad and you're like, damn, I've been looking at that for weeks now. Bam, you go ahead and buy it. And it's normal. It's totally normal to do that. But I think there's a point where this stuff, you just need to ask these hard questions and be like, how do we make this better? That actually just, everything you just said brought up like 10 (laughs) different thoughts. So I hope I can visit them all in some type of decent sequence and even remember what they all were. (laughs) Um, But but where I'll start is I remember I was in a a group of people. I think I was like one of three people in their 20s. And the majority of the group, I would say, was over 50 years old. There was about probably 20 or 30 of us. And we were all discussing. It was like a a group that used to get together to talk about any topic from like politics to this, consumerism. And they started, it it kept steering back into the, the fact that all these apps keep track of information and then sell that information to then sell you back products. And... A quick thing I thought about was I like stood up and I was like, hey, everybody, I, I know everybody here feels like their privacy is being invaded. But one thing to take into account is that without this invasion of privacy and without the ability to sell through these means, these products that you have in your homes that benefit your life would not be mass produced. And without that mass production, that means that these products would be more expensive. And therefore, you would have way less commodities in your life without this invasion of privacy. So what do you value more, privacy or commodities? And surely something to take into account, just a, just an open-ended question. I think a lot of people, when asked that question, know what their answer is, but their actions might not align with their answer. Yeah. But a bigger thing too yes. <laughs> is, and even right there just to say, everybody's, oh, Amazon's terrible, Amazon's taking over the world. Amaz-. Literally every single person I know shops on Amazon. I, I think I'm the only person I know that doesn't shop on Amazon. And I'm like, I'm listening to all these people be like, Amazon's taking over. And I'm like, okay, but what do you do? Like literally all you have to do to play any role is just not participate. And you don't even do that. Yeah. And so again, actions misalign. But another thing to take into account, there's a a psychologist that has a TED talk. Probably, I have no idea. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. But she talks about how she worked with uh, former Polish citizens who were leaving the Soviet Union and coming to a more democratic society. And while she would speak with them, one of the things she noticed was was in choice and individuality, in a sense. And so while in America, we feel I, I think in America our individuality is heavily tied to consumerism. Whether or not you shop at um Abercrombie or whether or not you shop at Gucci or whatever. And so that becomes a very big part of who you are. And consumerism plays into this, again, this ego shape of your, who you are, who's you, what can you attach to you and how can you differentiate from everybody else? What puts you in an in-group and what puts you in an out-group and who's out, who's in, yada. And so with these, um, with these former Soviet Polish people that she would work with, she would sit them down and she would say, okay, 
I have, what would you like to drink? Would you like water? Would you like Mountain Dew? Would you like Dr. Pepper? Or would you like Pepsi? <laughs> and so to an American, that's four choices, right? Mm -hmm. And so every single former Soviet person said, you gave me two choices. You asked me if I want water or if I want soda. The difference in the soda made no difference to them at all. And I would argue that's a really big thing that we see with consumerism is all these different decisions that you get to make about basically the same thing. And I would argue the person that shops at Abercrombie versus Gucci, if you brought that to a former Soviet person, they would say, you gave me the option. You gave me one option. Do I want a sweatshirt? Not where did the sweatshirt come from? Not what <laughs> brand is it? Not what color is it? You gave me what kind of sweatshirt? Do yeah. you want a sweatshirt? Or do you not want a sweatshirt? Those are my choices. And with that, another thing to take into account is also this kind of like falsehood that comes out of these ideas of shaping who you are out of consumerism and brand individuality because so many brands are not different brands. They're all owned by parent companies. And it's, it's really, I don't know, I find it very funny. Like all these people think that they're shopping for beer from a different place. And even for instance, one thing that I found really interesting, I got to sit down one night on accident with the head of key accounts for a well-known brewery. Mm -hmm. And what he was telling me was that behind the scenes, while everyone thinks that Miller and Bud Light are the basic guys behind beer and they stick to America's true and blue Pilsners and that's that and they don't need all this fancy hoity-toity crap, turns out that they understand the market and they understand the merit of investing in craft beer. The only thing is they know that if they were ever to come out with a beer, no one would ever buy a Miller IPA. So what they do is they go and they invest in smaller breweries. And so half of the craft beer that you're getting that doesn't have a little independent sticker on the end of it might as well say Miller IPA. And so we, we think that we're participating in this brand individuality and these brand separations, but there's so many parent companies controlling all this stuff. And it's just, I, I, th I find it very interesting to see this tie of consumerism and individuality. And mm -hmm. again, that plays back into that ego thing of I am an Abercrombie person. That's do people like me buy Abercrombie? Okay. Yes, they do. I fit into that group. That is where my <laughs> ego aligns and I'm going to do that. And yeah. that adds to my character, but it, it doesn't like it's, it's a dichotomy and it's also, I think that's the word. I don't even know the hell I'm saying it works. And that's what capitalism is built on. Like you have to keep introducing new markets for a growing population and that's how you keep an economy flowing. It makes sense. And one of my favorite quotes is that if everyone in the United States turned into a Buddhist overnight, capitalism would fail. And I think that's an accurate thing, but <laughs> it's, I, I find it's just very interesting things to ponder for me. Yeah, it is really interesting. And, and as you're saying this, I was reminded of a documentary that was recommended to me quite a while ago from another podcast, but it's the documentary is called The Century of the Self. And that documentary is built on these principles that you're talking about the foundational principles of what happened in the 1920s with brand identity and how the marketing culture shifted where mm -hmm. it started in the auto industry and they started before the auto industry, the way we see it today with many different models and many different shapes, sizes, colors, all of that, you name it before it was one car, one color. That was the model uh, T or like the original uh, Ford. And one of the things they started doing in differentiating themselves was if Henry Ford is going to give you only one, one car, one color, then we're, I think it was a Chrysler. I forget what, what dealer it was, but it's like Chrysler said, you know what? We're going to start making three models and we're going to make a luxury model. And then we're going to give you options so that you can pick the color of your car so you can be individual. And then yeah. they did the same tactics to the cigarette industry where 
they started branding to the individuals. Oh, look at who this person is. This person's mm -hmm. attractive. Like it says stuff about who that person is that uses that product. Yeah. But it's all like subconscious, like tricks. <laughs> and, and so I, I would highly recommend to anybody uh, interested in this topic to, to really mm -hmm. dive into that documentary. It's, it's the century yeah. of the self. It's really that good. That's a really big thing that I take into account, man, is with marketing, I'd always rather be on, I'd always rather make some, I'd, I'd rather shape an environment that informs a consumer and allows them to make a purchase out of joy than, than pushes them to make a purchase out of anxiety. Ooh. And I remember one of the really, this isn't necessarily around a purchasing environment, but just seeing how design can translate, I was able to sit down and sit with someone who was is a relatively important person in big picture thinking. And it turns out one of his mentors was an even bigger person in big picture thinking that has affected all of our lives uh, significantly. And I went to a site that is run by this person who I don't want to like name names or get too deep into information, yeah, but uh, they're, they're a very renowned thinker and engineer, I'll say. So I went to a site run by this person and I was like astonished at the lack of design thought put into it because it was like, Hey, do you want to learn the skill? But the entire site looked like you needed to debug your computer right now. Like you have a virus, you're going to explode. Like everything about it was like, it wasn't like a, Hey, check this out. It was like, mm -hmm. if you don't learn the skill, you're going to die in five seconds. And so that kind of stuff plays in. And I try really hard not to make emails or anything that just goes out and adds to someone's anxiety while thinking about a purchase. I'd rather someone be informed and happy about their purchase and make a purchase out of joy than sit there and just, I don't know. It's, but so with that, and the reason I started thinking about that is because it started coming out, a few articles came out like a year or two ago about how like kayak.com, I think Amazon was on the list. They were pulling all this really sketchy stuff and not only just anxiety inducing websites that was like, you missed the deal and like constantly being like, you missed this, you missed that focus on the negative so you can make a positive move. Some of them were pulling even sketchier stuff where it was like, you would check out and write a checkout. They would have added something to your list at the bottom of the webpage, it would say, hey, by the way, you add, we added this for you, but you wouldn't even scroll down that far. No rational person would. And then by the time you click purchase, you wouldn't have even thought to unclick that item. And so they were basically making mm. you purchase extra items. And like all that type of sketchy stuff was happening everywhere. And I'm glad those companies were getting called out for it. Whereas I think the, I think the, the best practice, I can't remember where I read it, but there was a government institution put in charge of this. The, the best practices are being transparent about what you offer someone, allowing them to opt out at all times and making sure it's at least the article I read says, make sure it's beneficial for the person. I'm not going to lie. I don't think a lot of companies think like that. I, I think a lot of companies think about the consumer while creating the market, but at the same time, they're in it for the money, right? Like they, they started a business to run a business. So at the yeah. very least, I think it should be at least be mutually beneficial, not strictly beneficial for the consumer, but at least mutually beneficial. But yeah, that's not almost all of the larger companies that exist today do not exist on that model. <laughs> like that, that is not the practice that unfortunately has led to the success that we see in some places. And I don't know, it's, it's scary. And I'm glad that stuff's getting surfaced and people are able to see what these things are doing and keeping yeah. track of. And also something to take into account too is that, a uh, government institution that was recently dissolved found that it was more expensive if people took Medicare 
later, if people took Medicare earlier in life or went on, yeah, if they took Medicare earlier versus later, it was more expensive for them and the government. And they knew mm-hmm. it was better for everybody if you would just take it later. So they did a lot of studies and found out that all you have to do is whichever decision is put first in front of someone, they are most likely to take that decision. If it's mm-hmm. a, if it's a two option decision, they will almost always go with the one that is presented to them first. Interesting. And so it's, it's a little scary for companies to take that into account. And do you present them side by side or do you say, are they sequentially presented? You know, or right. That stuff is worth handing and knowing. Yeah. I also don't know what rabbit hole I've gone down and where we started. But <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> it's all good. Um, That's my job to worry about. Yeah. I think the last thing just to close out on this, this like idea of marketing and stuff like that, at least how it mm-hmm. ties to technology for me is I think we just have to realize that at this point, if you're someone who's born in the nineties, it's too late for your digital data profile. Unless you don't use any of these technologies, you already have a profile on you. It exists. All the different companies have it. Facebook has one. Amazon has one. Google has one. Your cell phone company probably has one. And it's there. It's out there. Mm -hmm. And I like to think about it Mm -hmm. as a digital doppelganger. It's you, (laughs) but it's you as you use the internet. And it's you as in the face that you put out on the internet. It's not all of you, but it's a good, it's a different version of you. Maybe a shadow clone or something. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's a good proxy about who you are. By my opinion, I think it, by all rights, it's still you. And so it wouldn't exist unless you, like, unless you didn't exist. So you should own that at least partially. And you should be able to opt in to whether or not companies can utilize that for their own gain. And in whatever repercussions that, like you said, that there is a good reason to, that some of these things make your life more convenient. That is true. But also I think the reason some of these companies are successful is because we allow it to be successful because it only works when there's a hundred million people or more. I don't even know what the user base for Facebook is, but it's ridiculous. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so like, it only works because that many people use it. So that's where I'll leave that one just for people to think about. And what's interesting too to think about is that not all these things are inherently nefarious or didn't start in nefarious mindsets. So for instance, too, I'm spitballing here, but I'm I'm a little bit not. I don't know if there's this episode, there's a show on Netflix called Connected. I highly recommend it. Just Mm -hmm. fun little easy to digest episodes on stuff you probably didn't know. And one of the episodes is on surveillance and they end the episode out on a girl who found out a little too much about the behind the scenes of her Bumble profile and how much information. And so it was like, I think, I don't know, it was in the hundreds of pages about all the kind of stuff. And she didn't even really use the app that much, I believe. And so, yeah. And so what actually happens there too, is that some of the information they're keeping track of is like communications with other apps so that it knows if you have it open with Facebook and it knows how you use this Facebook and all this and that. Oh, weird. The start of that though, the start of that though is basically there's this back code that goes back to them every time you open up their app and it has to be that way because they need to know how their app fails. So if they didn't know what was going on externally on your phone when they were creating an application, they would have no idea. If you were on your phone and you opened a brand new app and you're like, wow, this hot new app is so exciting, but it closes every single time I open Twitter. What's that about? If they didn't have permissions, they would have never fixed that bug. Yeah. So they have to know. They need to know how the cross, the cross yeah. interactions between all the different permutations of. Yeah, uh, exactly. So they need to know what's going on in your phone, why it fails, where it's optimized, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And so that idea is not initially nefarious, but quite useful. But what happens is you can be like, we got all this information. Huh. What do we do with it? And it goes from there and it graduates into something, you know, that is less than kosher. But 
but yeah, sorry. No, <laughs> back onto the segue back onto the path we were initially going down. I can't remember, I can't even remember at this point. There's doesn't matter. There's so many threads. That's what the point of yeah, podcast. No. I love these kind of conversations. These are just the ones that you just hit the go be- go pedal and you just have fun. Let it rip. I, I would actually say I think that's the point in all of this, right? It's kind Those of like, thoughts I mentioned. It's it's easy to like you even said, as you pick A or B and distill down complex topics into good or bad. And in the reality of most mm-hmm. situations is there's really not good or bad only. They exist to provide benefit. And then it's not until we realize and stop and think and say, oh, wait, maybe this isn't as good as we thought it was. Yeah. And then we have to adjust and then hopefully try to negate some of those bad, but also sacrifice some of the good along the way. And it's really interesting. And I think that's part of what's going on in the world right now. So with that, Nick, we're actually already over an hour and I didn't even realize it. Oh, really? Yeah. Hell yeah. So if you've got any other closing thoughts, things that have been bouncing around your brain or any advice to people who may be listening out there who are either struggling or stuck inside their own head or whatever it may be to just offer to people. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. We all, oh, no. need, we all need a little bit of help. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know if you're ever in a dark place. Uh, there's a couple of really good songs that are out there. One of my favorites is uh, Truth Begins by Dirty Pretty Things. If you're ever down, I highly recommend that song. It's also got a little brass in it. Brass instruments always cheer me up. But I don't know. I think some something to take into account as you navigate life is that it's always worth actively witnessing how you participate within the world, even though it's exhausting. And a more important thing is once you witness and you've gathered data on yourself, uh, question your own priorities and see if your actions align with them or see if your actions do align. And if you think your priorities are as invigorating as they actually are, have your priorities grown? Have they changed? And while doing that, we are not responsible for the actions or consequences of things that lie beyond ourselves in a way. If I say something and someone else in the room gets mad, that anger is their anger. That being said, though, if my priorities align with a valuable, with valuing the relationship with that person, there's a balance there in that while I'm not responsible, maybe I could have navigated situations better and taken someone that I value into account more. And I don't know, just find out where you exist in the world, learn more about the world. Oh, I'm glad I took that rambling. Got me here. We probably potentially, sadly, exist in one of the most comfortable times that has ever existed, ever. And it's really easy to understand. It's really easy to mistake the world as this comfortable place. And it's not. It's really not. The world has had an awful history. And we've gotten to this place through hell and brimfire. And it's worth knowing the history of the things that led to what you participated in now. So look up the history of... The world, capitalism, democracy, every single thing that has laid has set precedent to where you participate and see what we've escaped, what we've recycled, what works, why it doesn't, some contemporaneous things that may work worked back in the day that are still part of our system that don't work anymore. Ask yourself why we're still doing them. Just look at the world and none of this stuff that exists around you at all is inherent. Nothing got there by accident at this point. The grass on your front lawn was planted by someone. And the system that you participate in was constructed by someone. So 
at least do some homework and figure out what you're doing, what you're participating in and see if you agree, see if not, see what you can do about it. But yeah. Cool. And I think with that, that's, about it. that's where we'll leave <laughs> this conversation. As always, it's fun to talk to you, Nick. And hopefully the next time it will be when we can actually be in person because it's always much better. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to me ramble. And, uh, Nothing I said is accurate, but (laughs) worth saying. It doesn't matter. It's all thoughts. It's all about figuring out what it's like to be in this crazy moment in history. Nobody, if there's anything that I figured out and not just through this thing, but more, but it's become even more clear given this situation is that the amount of everyone's just trying to do the best that they can. And some pretend like they know more than others. And yeah. I don't need to name names there, but or name people. But I just really would think that to be I'm a, hello, did I lose you? You're lagging. Okay, how about now? I don't, I don't know what happened. It sounds better now. You, you just had really bad connection. I could barely hear you. Okay, cool. There you go. You're back. Sorry now. about that. That's weird. But you were saying? What were you saying though? To be? No, I. You were saying. <laughs> uh, I was just saying, in this era of uncertainty, I feel like more people are pretending like they have answers or are doing the hundred percent right thing when in reality. Nobody really right. knows what the right thing to do is. And um, yeah. if we're just more clear on we're going to be attempting our best and then revising as we go along, as has always been the case, then I think a lot of this pain and turmoil and anguish associated would be not nearly as horrible. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, I think it's worth taking into account. I think some of the people put out that put out content – that says they have answers. Maybe they're coming from a good place and realizing they see other people suffering with issues they have and they understand that they might have answers that could help other people. And maybe they're just doing it out of the goodness of their heart without realizing that everyone has very complex individualistic experiences that might d- differ extremely when maybe their answers don't work for everybody. Or maybe they're just trying to turn a profit and they mm-hmm. are spewing crap. But yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. That's why it's worth it being aware, watching life happen and just, I don't know. It's exhausting to be inquisitive of everything, though. (laughs) Maybe give give yourself a break every once in a while. Yeah. It's okay (laughs) to watch Netflix every so often, right? (laughs) Yeah, dude. Got to find that balance to give your brain a break. Definitely. Speaking of giving my brain a break, I'm about to go do the same thing. I'm about to hit the gym. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's, a, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show.
Thank you all for listening to this episode of Feeding Curiosity. I hope you all learned something or at least got you thinking. If you want to dive in deeper, please head over to feedingcuriosity.net to find related links or just more podcasts and blogs that we've posted there. On top of this, please consider subscribing to our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest happenings on the website. Thank you all for joining me one more time and we'll catch you all in the next episode.